Let me pray, and then we'll look into God's Word. So, God, we, uh, we do believe in the Holy Spirit, and we say that because uh, any, any other attempt to study the Bible becomes simply a classroom cognitive event and not uh, some way in which your Holy Spirit can open our eyes to see and understand things in ways that are not humanly possible because your Spirit can show us things. So that's what we asked for, that you'd help us see, you would help us hear what your Holy Spirit wants us to see and hear, and then more, most importantly, would you be the source of power for change in our life so we can become the kind of people that you designed us to be and we've always dreamed we could be, full of the life and the power that comes from you. And we ask this all in your name, amen. So, uh, so just, just this week... Uh, my son, David, was telling a story about... I'm not going to tell the whole story, but he was telling a story about something. And he was sitting at the kitchen counter, and I was sitting on this chair in our kitchen. And I, like I do more than I wish I did, was interrupting him and trying to enhance the story. Like, well, no, you tell him about this, tell him about this, tell him about this. And I can't remember exactly how she said it, but my wife essentially said, can you just let him tell the story? And maybe you've been around people like that. They want to tell the story, and you're like, can you just let her tell the story? Can you just let him tell the story? And the reason I'm using that is because, so this week I've been, you know, I, I've been, been doing a series through the Gospel of Matthew, but I was trying to think with Easter, okay, how can I go about talking about the resurrection from Matthew's Gospel? So I had, and I, and I, I kind of, the way I study and think about this, I get some ideas and try to think, okay, I'm looking for some themes I can talk about, and, and uh there's times where I think I was trying to maybe enhance the story a little bit, like, okay, how, how can I figure out this and this and this? And that really works, but I... And I really sensed last night I heard God say to me, will you just let Matthew tell the story? Like, Matthew, Matthew 28 is the story of the resurrection. I was trying to add all kinds of things from chapter 21, 22, 24, 26, and I was going to make it all this kind of... And I feel like Jesus, God just said to me, just let Matthew tell the story. So uh, we've been doing a series called Follow Jesus. There's no one like him, just from the Gospel of Matthew. And again, just to remind you, Matthew was a tax collector for the Roman government, which was essentially being traitorous because the Romans occupied Israel. They didn't like it. So Matthew collecting taxes for the occupiers was uh, uh, putting him in a way outside of the realm of uh, other Jews didn't like him. They hated him. They'd spit on him or whatever. But then Matthew became a follower of Jesus, totally unlikely because Jesus called him, said, follow me. And Matthew, something stirred inside him. He follows Jesus. So Matthew is telling the story. The Gospel of Matthew is Matthew's version, Matthew's experience. And we're assuming, too, that Matthew probably sat down with other people who were at some of these events. And what do you remember about this? And Because that's the only way they could document what was going on so and Matthew is very detail oriented as a gospel he, pay, he pays attention to details since he was a tax collector he probably was a detailed money guy but he pays attention to details and he's laser focused on helping people understand there's nobody like Jesus there's nobody like him so you need to follow this guy he's the Messiah he was telling the Jews he's the one he's the one who's going to turn the world upside down and make it right side up again. He's the one. And so Matthew sees this and he wants people to understand this. So, so I just thought 
I'm just going to let Matthew tell the story. So I'm going, to, we're going to, I'm going to read through chapter 20. It's going to be on the screen behind me. And I'll stop at different times to kind of say, okay, Matthew's telling the story, but let's pay attention to some of the details he's including. So, uh, because sometimes it's like, I, we might think, well, I know Jesus rose from the dead, and we, you know, that's a general concept we all know. But sometimes it's good to kind of just let the story be told, but also look at the details of the story. It's like, oh. I mean, there was something in this, and I'll talk about it in a few minutes. There was something in this when I read the story again. I was like, oh, hmm, I wonder why Jesus did that. As things I hadn't really, I'd seen before, but I hadn't seen before, all right? So uh, starting from Matthew chapter 28, I think 1 through 4, we'll start on the screen behind me. I'm just going to read from what I have up here. You can follow it or you can just listen. But this is Matthew 20. This is Matthew telling the story of the resurrection. Again, he probably talked to people. He obviously had to talk to some people because... Some of the things that happened, he describes he's not there. But he was a disciple of Jesus. And like the other disciples, Judas had already betrayed Jesus. Judas had already committed suicide. So there's 11 disciples left, plus others who are followers of Jesus. Um, If you remember when Jesus, the night he was arrested and betrayed, they all fled. They were scared. They they weren't loyal to him. They didn't hang out. They they fled. So... uh, this story, can you imagine Matthew gathering all the data for this after it all happened? Like, i got to retell this story. This is incredible, all right? So early on Sunday morning, Jesus had died on Friday. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. So we're assuming Matthew might have talked to these ladies post this situation. Like, tell me what you experienced, all right? Suddenly, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning. His clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear, the Roman guards, who were told to guard the tomb because the Jewish leaders were like, hey, these disciples, this guy talks about rising from the dead. So just so we, so the disciples are going to steal his body and say he was risen from the dead. So we better put a stone on this tomb, put a seal on it with the emperor's stamp on it, and put guards there so they can't, lie and do something that's going to be deceptive, right? So the guards at seeing this angel, the guards shook with fear when they saw him and they fell into a dead faint. So when, I'm, when I read this, I've read a lot, but just when I was rereading it in the last few days, I thought, okay, just this alone here, you've heard me talk about the weird meter, you know, when things get, like, this is, this is weird meter stuff. Wait a minute. An earthquake that seemed to happen not randomly, but really intentionally. An earthquake, and then an angel shows up? I mean, that's the weird meter's on high at this point. Like, that's kind of weird. Rolled the stone away, sat on it. So we're assuming Jesus had already left the tomb. He didn't, he didn't need the angel to roll the stone away for him, but the angel's doing that so Mary and the other Mary can see that. But my word for this part of the passage is Supernatural. Matthew's saying the resurrection of Jesus had an incredible supernatural element. Even apart from Jesus raising the dead, but earthquake happening and then angels showing up. It's either made up drama myth or it's true. And what I like to say to people, and I've said this here a number of times, Christianity at its core is a supernatural religion. It's not a moral religion. It's not simply a behavioral religion. It's not a, uh, 
do's and don'ts religion. At the core of what following Jesus is all about is there was this supernatural event called the resurrection where a dead body actually came back to life and stayed back to life. So we don't, the religion following Jesus as Christians, the core of it is it's supernatural. And once you, once you're there, then you see things in, in the Bible you maybe don't see otherwise. And you, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of people that would say, well, some of this stuff's kind of, uh, allegory or, you know, just literary methods for them to be encouraged to buy Jesus. And they don't, he didn't really rise into that kind of, but there, Matthew's very clear about the details here and the details are supernatural. So at the core, this is a supernatural event, the supernatural event of all history, all right? I'll go on, chapter, chapter 28, verse 5. Then the angel spoke to the woman. And I will say the angel must have been quite awe-inspiring because the guard shook with fear. So this, this was not, you know, little chubby cherubim. Uh, there was one TV series that depicted the angels, and I thought it was really good. They were like eight feet tall. And, and magnificent, magnificent beings. I don't know if that's what they're like, but I'm assuming usually when angels show up, people are deathly afraid. I'm not afraid of a chubby little cherub kind of thing. Right? So th- these angels uh, must have been massive or magnificent. Maybe not massive. I don't mean massive like big, but magnificent. The angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid. All right? He says that because it would probably be shocking to see this happen. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. Read that next line with me, starting with he is. He is risen from the dead. The angel says that specifically. He is risen from the dead, just as he said he would happen. There were four, maybe five times in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus told the disciples ahead of time, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be, around, I'm going to be tortured, crucified, and raised from the dead on the third day. And the sense was, the, 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 the disciples still didn't get it, and if anything, they were stuck in the sense that Jesus was going to be crucified and died. And when he talked about resurrection, they probably just thought that was kind of like allegorical, kind of retribution. But they, they, there was no concept in their mind of a physical resurrection. The Old Testament, they didn't understand the Old Testament to say that was going to happen. So when, when the angel says to Mary and Mary in this case, he is risen from the dead, it was shocking. He has risen to the dead, just as he said would happen. Come see where his body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has, here's the phrase again, Matthew pays attention to detail. Mary and Mary must have told him, this is exactly what the angel told us. He has risen from the dead. And the, and the phrase there, even in the original Greek language, literally means comes, you know, comes back to life. It's not just a figure of speech. He has risen from the dead. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. I mean, I think the angel probably said that because maybe they knew. Sometime down the line, Matthew and some of the other guys would want to say, tell me what the angel said. This is exactly what it said. All right, on to verse 8. So that one, supernatural is the first part of the passage. And this one is simply, he's risen. He really is risen. We'll continue as we let Matthew tell the story. The woman ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened but also filled with great joy. We'll talk about that phrase there in a second. They rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them. He greeted them, and they ran to him, and they grasped his feet. I think Matthew includes that detail because the women told him that's what they did. You don't grasp the feet of a ghost. 
you grasp the feet of a, of a person who's real. I think Matthew included that intentionally because that's what the women told him happened. He grasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. All right, let me go back to the phrase frightened but also filled with great joy. Just as I was thinking about this week, I thought, what did that feel like? I've never bungee jumped before, but I'm assuming I would feel frightened but filled with great, filled with great joy in a small kind of way, right? I've never jumped off a parachute, all right? I have jumped off a really high uh, water platform into a lake that was, uh, <laughs> I, I was frightened to jump, but once I jumped, I was filled with great joy. So there's something, we understand with that combination, actually the time was this water place. We were, I was way up high. It was, it was too high for, at that time, I was probably, I don't know, 45 years old. I, and I stood there, and I stood there, and I stood there because I was afraid. And Gretchen, who was probably, I don't know, 10 at the time, said, what's the matter, Dad? You scared? I was like, yes, I'm scared. But I was afraid. But then when I jumped, it was, you have this kind of thrill. So I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, I'm, trying, I'm, not mag, I'm not making that equal to their sense of Jesus' resurrection. But in a small way, I think we know what it means to be Afraid, but filled with joy. It's like, because you can't make sense of what's happening, and you're scared to death of what's happening because you don't know what, it, it feels dangerous, but it feels exhilarating. So dangerous and exhilarating is kind of what they were feeling. Something's dangerous to you. Something's exhilarating. All right? So they were frightened, but also filled with great joy. Um, I'll just say from this part of the passage, my hope for all of us, myself included, is that Jesus does something in your life in the next week, month, year that is dangerous but exhilarating. And you'll feel it. That he does something that puts you in a situation where you're scared to death, but something feels coming alive in you. I don't know what that might be. Sometimes it, in, my, in my life there's time where I feel like I had to trust God with something that, that was scary. Not scary like my life's in danger, but I had to trust him. Another analogy I used at that time in my life was it's like swinging on a trapeze and then God tells you to let go before you see the other trapeze coming in. I mean, it's frightening, but it's exhilarating. because you. So trusting God and his, the ways that Jesus works in our lives often is frightening, but exhilarating. Great joy. So my hope is that will be something we all experience, maybe in small ways, but also maybe in big ways. Because that's what Jesus, when we encounter Jesus in real dynamic ways, which he likes to encounter us, fear and joy will often be, so they used to, for me is often that's a marker that this is Jesus trying to get me to do something. If I'm scared to death, but kind of the sense of exhilarating joy goes with it, it's a good sign to me, I think this might be God telling me to do something, right? So... They were frightened but filled with great joy. All right, let me go on to verse 28, or 28, verse 11. It's the next slide. As the women were on their way, so they're on their way to tell the disciples, hey, Jesus is going to meet us in Galilee. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city. So these are the guards that were put there to prevent the disciples. So the Jewish leaders saw it. They didn't want the disciples to steal the body and lie about it. But the guards you know, saw the angel and they fell down. They kind of faint out of fear. Some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. A meeting with the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say 
Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. All right. Typically, in the Roman military world, if this would have happened, the soldiers would be just killed. If your prisoner gets away, or whatever, if your job does, they get killed. in this case, they don't kill him because they need, they need him to carry out the lie. All right? You must say, Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. But it's interesting because they said they were sleeping, but at the same time, they told the elders what had happened. They told the elders, obviously, we saw this massive being, and the stone was rolled away. We don't, we don't make of it. Okay, don't tell people that story. Tell them this story. We fell asleep. The disciples somehow moved this massive stone without us waking up and stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were told to say. Their story spread widely among the Jews, and they still tell it today. It's interesting, even when you look at other, or interact with other world religions, um, like even, uh, I've had some acquaintances I knew that were Muslim, and they don't believe Jesus died. They think there was a bait and switch and somebody else came in. Um, and other, you know, Mormonism, others have a different view of what happened. But it's interesting, all of it has this sense of, and especially here, there's this sense of we need to deceive people about what just happened here. Because if that is what really happened and that's what gets known, we won't be able to stop this massive thing from happening with this Jesus stuff. But the story spread rightly. And, and here I'm going to talk about just my, my, word for this, my word for this part of this passage is uh, deception. They wanted to deceive people into believing that Jesus supernaturally had done something. All right? Fast forward to 2022, April 17th, today. All right? It's the same strategy of the enemy today against us. He's always wanted to deceive us into thinking, Jesus can't do anything supernatural in your life. He can't change that habit of yours. He won't change the way you treat people. He can't do anything. There's no supernatural stuff happening. It's a lie. All right? It's the same spirit that existed in those leaders who were trying to say, we've got to tell them a lie because this can't. It's the same spirit we hear today. It's like, that's not going to change. The way, you know, you, you have this issue in your life and you want to see change, you want to see God change something in your heart, not going to change. There's no such thing as supernatural change. So the lie that they told the guards to tell is the same lie that we get told today. Ah, don't believe it. Supernatural change doesn't happen. Don't believe it. So don't believe the lie. So we, we look at this and we think, oh, it's kind of silly, but it's like, don't believe the lie. And, and on this too... This is what's interesting. Uh, you know, when you think about it, because people might, still, people might still say, well, but Matthew could have written this to kind of cover the bases because maybe Matthew thought it was a lie. Maybe Matthew, really th- maybe, maybe Matthew really knew this was what happened, so they have to kind of figure out how to... And, and the, best, the best response to that, which I think makes a lot of sense, okay, let's assume for a second that Jesus rising from the dead was a lie. Let's assume for a second they stole his body like the lie was. They stole his body and then start telling people, hey, he rose from the dead. All right? So they know it's a lie. They just want to keep the spirit going, right? Okay, so there's 11 disciples left after 
Judas killed himself. Of the 11 disciples, at least we know 10 of them. We don't know about how John died exactly, but the other ones all died as martyrs. They were killed because they talked about the resurrected Jesus too much. Okay? If they knew it was a lie, why did they die for a lie? I mean, if I, if I knew it was a lie and they're getting ready to burn me at the stake, wait, 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 wait. It's all a big lie. We stole his body and we just told people that. People don't die a martyr's death for what they know to be a lie. So the disciples really not just believe Jesus rose from the dead, they believe it because they experienced it, they saw it, they saw him. So the sense of people will say, well, it just happened kind of figuratively, the disciples believed it happened because they wanted, to, they wanted the spirit of Jesus to live on in them. People don't die for what they know is a bald-faced lie. They don't. They're, at the end, they would, they would rat each other out. No, no, it's a lie, all right? So, but also, just don't believe the ways that the enemy tries to lie to us about things that can and cannot happen in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships, and whatever else, all right? All right, uh, verse 20, 28. Then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. Now, here's something I never noticed before. So, go back to the, first, the verse again one more time. They left for Galilee, if you remember from the earlier in the passage, Jesus told Mary, the Marys, hey, tell them to meet me in Galilee. All right, so go to, now go to the next slide. So here, here's what kind of ruffles my feathers a bit. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. All right, Galilee, which is where all the disciples would have been from. They all grew up there in the northern part. It's about 100 miles away from Jerusalem to Galilee. Why did Jesus make them wait that long to see him? I mean, 100 miles, the average person walks three or four miles an hour. So that's at least a 25, 25-mile 25 walk for all the disciples, who knows how many days that took them, to walk from Jerusalem all the way to Galilee. And they want to see Jesus. They want to see this resurrected Jesus the women told them about. And the women are probably walking with him. No, no, we really saw him. But they've got two or three days of walking to wait. And some of them still doubt it. And you might be like, well, probably along the way, they were probably talking. Mary, tell us again exactly what you saw. Is this what he said to do? Why are we going to Galilee? I mean, I, I had never noticed this before. It's like, why did Jesus make them wait to see him? I mean, if I'm Jesus and I'm not, I'd be like... Hey, I'm going to, Mary, just tell me where they are because I'm going to go show them. And like, ta-da, here I am. Because I want all their doubts and fears to go away. But why did they say, tell them to walk 100 miles here and I'll, go, and I'll see them there. A couple days from now, probably. And it's just like, what, why did Jesus do that? And, and it makes me think about, there's another part of the resurrection story told, told in the other Gospels where uh, Jesus, actually, uh, uh, a, a follower of Jesus named Cleopas and another follower of Jesus we don't know who it was, the Bible doesn't name most people think it was John were walking along the road this is like days after all this happened they're walking along the road and uh, they're talking about what happened and Jesus starts walking with them the resurrected Jesus 
And somehow the Bible tells us they were kept from seeing it was him. So I don't know what that means. They didn't recognize it as Jesus. And they're walking along the road, and they're talking, and then Jesus kind of joins the, the journey with them. And Jesus says to them, what are, you, what are you guys talking about? And they stop and it's like, they look at this guy who was Jesus, but they just didn't recognize him. Are you the only one who doesn't know what just happened in Jerusalem? Like, what's up with you, dude? And it said, and it said when, they, when Jesus asked them, he said, you don't know the things that have been happening? And he says to them, what things? And the Bible even tells us that Cleopas and the other disciple had sadness written across their faces. And Jesus says, what things? Okay, I'm stepping out of the story now. Okay, Jesus, these guys are sad. You could just say, ta-da, here I am, and their sadness would turn into joy. Why are you letting them? And then he, he says, this is what things? And they said, and they said, the rest of the walk, they're telling what happened. It's like, why does Jesus let us walk, into, walk in sad situations? I'm thinking even Aaron and Sadie. Why does he let us walk into situations where he could ta-da at any moment and change it? His resurrection power could show up at any moment. There must be a reason that's good for our souls for us to... It's not good for us to be like downcast and sad, but there's something about in sadness of still having a confidence of what God can do that must be good for us. Or Jesus would have told him right away, hey, it's me. Or when he told Mary, he wouldn't have said, tell them to meet me in Galilee. He would have said, where are you? I'm going to run to them because I want to show them. But sometimes he lets us stay in our sadness because there's something good that happens in that place of our hearts. It sound, I don't mean to sound, it's not like, just not a harsh thing, but there's something good that we grow in our souls when Jesus lets us stay in sadness. Otherwise, he would be, you know, snapping his fingers and have to dull movements all over the place. I mean, knots would be healed, your problems would go away overnight. Like, why do we have to struggle so there must be something innately powerful about struggle and sadness that I think the Bible would, would say, the Bible does say, somehow prepares in us a reservoir of joy that couldn't happen any other way. All right, so that, that just, go back, go, go to the next slide now. So I'm just back to this in the Galilee. It's like, when I read this, I just read this part yesterday morning, and I was like, why did you tell them to wait? But again, I think it's because we have to wait, and some, there's something good about what God... It's not that God's indifferent. He's not indifferent to Sadie and Aaron. It's not that Jesus is not powerful. He can snap his fingers and change it. But there's something greater he, can, he sees growing in us when we have to process sadness and difficulty and struggle. And he knows, again, that cultivates in us a reservoir of joy that could happen no other way. All right. Go to the next one. Last one. So they, they see him. They're in Galilee. Some of them still doubting. It says, Jesus came and told his disciples. And they're, they're still probably processing what? This is Jesus. I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this. Read this last time with me out loud. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, I want to I s- s- go back to the word authority. I've been given all authority. Another way you could, another translation of that same word is power. Authority and power. Think about the authority and power that a president has or a king has. Jesus is saying, because it's power to direct. It's power to lead. It's power to influence. It's power to kind of be the king over the realm. And because of his obedience to crucifixion and that God raised him from the dead, he's handed the power. The crown is put on his head. He's got power. He's got all authority in heaven and on earth. Like universal authority. Invisible world, visible world. He's got all authority. He's got power. And he has that power because he defeated death. And so, it, like I said, there's, the king has power and authority. So I, what Matthew, I think, is trying to remind us here is this guy Jesus, there is no one like him. He's the king. Like the king of not just the whole world, but the universe. He's the king. And his power is not used in self-serving ways for himself. His power is used for the sake of the freedom of others and the release of others from captivity. So he's a really good king. Not just a good king, he's a great king. But he's really dangerous, but he's a great king. And he has all the authority. And so that leaves me, and he tells us to go. Go, you know, talks about obeying all that he said. Because when we do that, we become the people that he tells us we can be. But I'll just kind of end back with here. If Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he has a crown, I'd be unwise not to do whatever he tells me to do. He's the king. I'm not, I'm not saying unwise to obey because I'm afraid he's going to punish me. But if he has all authority and all power... I better do what he says he wants me to do. And why would I not want to? Why would I not want to? So when he tells me to forgive those who've hurt me, he's the king. He says, I need to do that. When he tells me to love the unlovable, I'm going to do that. When he tells me to be generous with my money, I'm going to do that. When he tells me specific situations to be generous with my money. Even, I, even if I look at my bank account, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would I give this away to them? God, no, Jesus, I want you to do it. And maybe there's certain situations right now where you feel like Jesus is telling you to do something that makes you frightened yet filled with joy. Like, why would I? But do it. He's the king. And he's the king because he knows what's best for you. And he knows what's best for all his subjects in the kingdom. And he needs us to be ambassadors in his kingdom. So again, back to the, the opening slide of the whole series. And we'll, it says, following Jesus. Go to the reality. Follow, follow me. That's what Jesus says. Follow me. And we don't follow him like we follow people on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Because we're not really following them. We just look what they have. 
And we don't follow him like we follow the advice of a good friend or a good therapist. We follow him like we follow a king who's leading in battle to set people free. That's a whole different kind of following. I, I can follow advice of my wife. I can follow advice of a therapist and a counselor, other pastors. I can follow their advice. But I can also choose not to. Right? When Jesus says, follow me, I better not choose not to. Not out of fear, but out of where is he leading me that I would probably be exhilarated to go into, but I'm scared to death. So follow him. So whatever Jesus is telling you to do, follow him. Whatever he says to do, when you look at the Gospels, um, follow him. So I'll finish with this. I, I, I wrote this years ago, but I always like to remind people because I'm just, somebody asked me lately about if I'm a Christian. And I said, I don't like to use that term anymore. I've said, I said this here. I like to tell people I'm an I'm a avid follower of a guy named Jesus because I said there's nobody like him. And so I'll, I'll finish with this. This is what I wrote up. Um, it's, my, it's a document I have called Jesus Is, all right? Because this is Jesus, and there's nobody like him, all right? Jesus is powerful, terrifying, and amazing. He's explosive, he's fierce, he's focused. He's confrontational, controversial, and supernatural. He's never hurried, never manipulative, and never selfish. He's truthful, blunt, and disruptive. And he's courageous enough to say to you and me what everyone else knows but won't say. He's playful, he's witty, he's dynamic, he's sensitive, he's compassionate, and he's incredibly kind. Jesus is brilliant. Brilliant. We tend to think that's preserved for the university hallways, but there's nobody more brilliant than Jesus. Who knows how to life, live life better than him? Right? He's brilliant. He's wildly free, he's absolutely holy. He's full of truth, he's full of mercy. He's misunderstood, he's rejected, he's betrayed. He's mocked, he's tortured, he's crucified, and then he is supernaturally raised from the dead. And he is uh, the dangerously good man. Uh, let's pray. So Jesus, um, if nothing else on Easter, amidst all the eggs and chocolate and peeps and bunnies and all those things that are part of Easter, which are fun to be a part of, but we never want to lose focus that the central reality of Easter is you supernaturally resurrected in a bodily form you and there's no one like you there's no one who that's ever happened to before let alone there's no one like all the other qualities you have in your life uh, the qualities I've just talked about there's no one like you uh, there's no one even worth our consideration of following apart from you so we want to follow you. Uh, we want to be the kind of people you said we could be, full of life and power that comes from God, because we want to be a part of your revolution of changing the world because of this powerful love that you've put in our hearts. And Jesus, we love you, and uh, we ask this all in your name. Amen.